the liberation that will lead to the wellness of black queer and trans femmes is a level of liberation that certainly my people have never experienced in our own cultural context. Welcome to Black Tea Speaks, the podcast about feminist epistemologies, healing practices, and justice. Black Tea Speaks is a community of practice that is rooted in and guided by those whose voices are often forgotten or refuted. It aims to recognize that our Black, Indigenous, disabled, queer, and trans voices are sources of expertise. We are healers and cultural workers aiming to delve into the intersections where other lifestyle and self-help content often glides over or does not engage with. We offer tools to build cross-movement solidarity and radical activism. We are expansive, and most importantly, we will speak. I'm your host, Gray Butler, so grab a cup of your favorite beverage and enjoy the episode. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that this recording is taking place on the occupied territory of the Piscataway people and to implore listeners to look into the land from which they are listening from and to connect with local indigenous organizations to aid in solidarity movements uniquely localized. Some links will be in the podcast description and on the Black Tea Speaks website that will help listeners figure out what land they are on and to connect with local indigenous groups. If you have been following this podcast and dig it and want to become a sustaining member of the community to gain early access to podcast episodes, some uncut interviews and workbook pages or extra little recorded shorts um, and so much more, consider joining the Black Tea Speaks Patreon page. The link will be in the description along with links to all of the resources audio clips and everything mentioned in the episode. Hello guys, gals, and non-binary pals. For today's episode, I wanted to do some work grounding this podcast as well as the larger activist work that is happening around the country within its larger framework of transformative justice. I want to begin one of many more conversations to come about what exactly that means and what does it look like. As someone who is still relatively new to abolition work and transformative justice, I believe now is more important than ever to step into that journey and I want to take you all along for the ride. Before we begin, I want to add a content warning for discussions of childhood sexual abuse and rape. In today's episode, I've invited Amita Swadin to join us into this conversation about transformative justice, abolition, accountability, and harm. Amita Swadin is an educator, storyteller, activist, and consultant dedicated to fighting interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Their commitments and approach to this work stems from their experiences as a genderqueer femme woman of color, daughter of immigrants, and the years of abuse by their parents, including eight years of rape by their father. They are a frequent speaker at colleges, conferences, and community organizations nationwide, and a consultant with over 15 years of experience in nonprofits serving low-income, immigrant, and LGBTQ youth of color in Los Angeles and New York City. Amita has been publicly out as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse since they interned at the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Violence Against Women in 1997. 
2016, Amita received a two-year Just Beginnings Collective Fellowship, allowing them to work full-time to end child sexual abuse and to help survivors heal. With this fellowship, they have been working on the Mirror Memoirs Project, an oral history project centering the narratives, healing, and leadership of LGBTQ survivors of color and the movement to end childhood sexual abuse. One thing I want to hone in and make clear in this episode is that this work is not new. It's only that it's just becoming a part of the mainstream discourse, both in ways that are incredibly transformative and inspiring, as well as ways that have been poorly understood and co-opted by the very systems and institutions they are meant to dismantle. We are resting on the backs of giants. We are resting on the work of explicitly Black, Brown, Indigenous, queer, and trans feminists who started, nurtured, and shaped the abolition and transformative justice movements. Although, as Black Lives Matter has gained mainstream attention, the contribution and grounding in these movements has been silenced and dismissed. If we really want to embody the ethos of Black Lives Matter, we have to really dive into its explicitly radical Black, queer, indigenous, and femme roots. Transformative justice and abolition work, the roots of a good portion of Black Lives Matter work, are not meant to be divorced from these underlying cohesive movements towards liberation. It is imperative that we understand and engage the frameworks that made possible the external gains that we are seeing in Black Lives Matter in this political moment, such as the commitment to defund the Minneapolis police. When we understand these movements through the larger frameworks of transformative justice and abolition, we can learn from them, grow with them, and more precisely shape our goals. I myself am just beginning to dip my toe into transformative justice and abolition work. After years of organizing as well as studying these origins, I still have much to learn from the mentors that come before me. And I've been scrambling to articulate real-time what is the actual driving force behind this change towards accountability, transformation, liberation, and mutual aid we are seeing in this work. So, one segment of this work, the work of abolition, deals with the concepts of harm, violence, and accountability, which we will be diving into today. First, it's important to understand what exactly is transformative justice. In an interview for the Barnard Center for Research on Women, Adrienne Marie Brown explains transformative justice as the following. So when I'm trying to explain transformative justice to people, I usually back away from, I don't go straight at, okay, this is transformative justice. I usually actually go back to punitive justice. I start out with like what we're used to and what we've been socialized into is punitive justice. And and then I ask people, if I'm in a room full of people, even in you know a room full of friends, I'll be like, how many of you... Um, grew up in an experience where you were punished when harm happened. And I give examples. You were expelled, you were put in detention, you're suspension, you're put on timeout. But the main move was you're removed from community in some way because you've done harm. And people are like, oh, yeah, you know, everyone either has that experience or they were part of spaces where they saw that experience. And then I'm like, you know, we age, we grow that up so that then you go into prison or you get the death penalty or you get canceled from your community, right? That same, it's the same process. So we live in this, that's what we're swimming in. And then I talk about restorative justice as a steps in the right direction, right? It's like harm has happened. How do we restore ourselves back to 
that relationship that existed before the harm happened. So I'm like, someone stole your purse. You get an apology. They do some community service. Hopefully we return to like where we were. Um, but for me, I always say that doesn't go far enough because if the original conditions were unjust, then returning to those original conditions is not actually justice, right? You're just going to have someone who's like, great, now I returned everything to you. I still don't have anything and I'm still hungry and I still need something. Um, so uh, I'm like, so we need to go further. So to me, transformative justice, the first aspect of it is that it goes all the way down to the root system of the harm and says, how do we change, heal, transform, pull this up? What do we need to do at the root system so that this harm is no longer possible? Like what we're trying to do is stop this harm from ever being possible again. And then how do we understand that the state is so committed to punitive justice, so the state is not gonna be able to engage in transformative justice with us. So we don't go to the state to do this kind of deep work. Um, and then how do we turn towards each other to hold this space? And in that turning to each other, we have to say, I believe you can transform. Two major aspects of this work towards transformative justice center around understandings of harm and accountability and the lessons learned throughout decades of experiments in accountability. In particular, the work of community accountability grows out of the work of addressing violence experienced within movement spaces in queer trans POC spaces where reliance on state-sanctioned intervention was not plausible and actively harmful, as well as addressing the ways in which harm and violence and healing is processed for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Transformative justice offers a framework towards specific ways of addressing community harm centered in those most impacted by the harm, with community accountability being one of the processes to achieve this. For more information about accountability, check out the link in the description for last episode's Rad Vocab on Accountability, and this upcoming episode's Rad Vocab on Accountability will be on further defining harm. With that, I wanted to invite Amita into this conversation. It's really exciting to me always as someone who is now solidly middle-aged um, and who still remembers everything about what it meant to be a young person to, um, to meet young survivors like yourself. And it's super exciting to me that you are doing political work around survivorship because I'm just very clear that the work to end rape culture and child sexual abuse is intergenerational. And so it's my pleasure to be here and thank you for inviting me. Um, so um, some of the themes that I've been talking about and like in the podcast, and I think that are really pertinent to the present moment, especially with like conversations about um, like police abolition and all of these and like transformative justice, I think it's starting to like, get in both for better and for worse the mainstream conversation um and i think something that i know i find like difficulty in my own conversations with folks who like haven't been familiar with that is like really talking about um accountability and harm um and sort of, and I, and I had listened to the, you were on a panel like a year ago with like a bunch of transformative justice folks about like, like, um, explaining or like talking about harm. And I guess I was just like, the first question I, I have for you is like, how do you, 
conceptualize like yeah how do you conceptualize harm in ways that don't sort of um flatten all of the different ways of ways of harm and like especially in this in this moment we throw around the words like violence and harm and like criminality and all of these things are kind of moving together but from a transformative justice perspective how do we navigate that and address that and like move through it great question uh I guess I want to begin by saying when it comes to ideas of transformative justice and abolition, there is not one answer yet on what the world will look like when we abolish all of the systems that are causing harm. So uh, I think we're all figuring it out together. What is clear to me is that there, there are like there is an, an ideological framework around the violence that we are working to undo. And that work has been developed, you know, cross-generationally, starting with, you know, the black queer women and and cishet women who were part of the Combahee River Collective. Um, it was also practiced by Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera as trans, black, and Latinx women who were survivors of police violence, and Sylvia Rivera was also open about being a survivor of child sexual abuse. Um, you know, we, we are not inventing this out of thin air, right? There are, are many, um, particularly Black and Latinx and Indigenous trans and queer feminists who have been critiquing institutional violence and naming the um, cultural and historical and structural oppression that all of us who live in this in Turtle Island, you know, and the part of Turtle Island that is colonially called the United States, um, who stand to benefit from the fall of these structures, right? Because yes, all harm is not the same, right? There are structures of violence at play. And the way I understand transformative justice has been very much informed by some of the groups I've named and then also um, Insight Women of Color Against Violence and Critical Resistance and Creative Interventions and the work of folks like Miriam Kaba um, and some of my peers like Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha and Ijaris Dixon. Um, so yeah, I think it's always important to name just the traditions that have informed the way that we are now moving, you know? Um, mm -hmm. um, so I'll start there. If, you, if you're listening to this conversation and you haven't read any of the writings of the different groups or, or practitioners who I've named, that's a good place to start if you're coming to transformative justice as a new idea and abolition as a new idea. Um, I think it is very clear to me, and, and Miriam Kaba talks very publicly about this as well, that because we are all raised in the violent culture of white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchal rape culture, every single one of us is raised in this abusive culture. And unless we unlearn that socialization, we are essentially vectors of harm, right? We mm -hmm. are going to replicate that culture, which is inherently an, a harmful set of values and ways of being with each other. 
So yes, I do think we all do cause harm um, and can cause harm and have the potential to cause harm. I also think you're raising an incredibly important point that all harm is not the same. I think that um, when we say things in accountability processes like the in the impact is greater than your intent. I think that is around a particular kind of harm that was unintentional um, mm -hmm. and is often a one-time thing or perhaps a, a pattern of a series of events that were done without intent to be harmful and yet were harmful, right? Mm -hmm. That is a particular kind of harm where the work of accountability includes the person who did the harm coming into a place of self-awareness uh, mm -hmm. and so that they can apologize and work on shifting their behavior. And so that the people who are right around that person who have done the harm can also perhaps shift the culture of their friend group or their blood family or whatever, wherever the, the network was that that harm happened within, right? And then there is a, a different kind of harm that is um, sanctioned or bolstered or buttressed. I'm not sure which of those words I wanna use most by institutional structures of power uh, and cultural hierarchies of power. So for example, uh, when you think about patriarchal violence in a romantic partnership or parental violence in a home towards a child, uh, although both of those are happening in the quote unquote private sphere, they are sanctioned by the values of rape culture, adultism, and, mm. and patriarchy, right? And inherent in that patriarchy, um, homophobia and transphobia. And so I think that that is a different kind of harm, right? Because it's not, between, it's not happening between two peers. There's a power dynamic at play. Same thing for um, violence that happens from, let's say, a supervisor towards a supervisee right, that that is institutionally protected harm or violence. I think mm -hmm. that that needs to be distinguished in a separate category. There's also the distinction between harm and abuse. To me, abuse is um, a pattern of deliberate harm, oftentimes to maintain a power dynamic and in um, a power dynamic that is, again, institutionally and culturally sanctioned. So the violence I experienced uh, from my father was abuse for sure. It was deliberate over the course of 16 years of different kinds of violence. And then it was institutionally sanctioned because he was my father and uh, he is a man. I was a female assigned child, right? He was an adult. Um, and then there is state sanctioned violence, which I think is yet another distinguishable mm -hmm. level of harm, right? When we talk about anti-Black and anti-Indigenous violence by the police, uh, or we talk about imperialist violence by our military conducted in mostly global South countries uh, around the world, right? That is institutionally mm -hmm. sanctioned violence where I don't think the word harm goes nearly far enough, right? Mm. Um, because we're talking about just the abuse by the state and the state being held accountable. It looks very different than the kind of circle process uh, we might use when harm happens between two people um, who are essentially peers in one community. Mm. I don't know if that if that was uh, 
clear enough, but those are some of the levels of really important distinctions that I think do need to be made to your point that not all harm is the same. Yeah. Um, just taking a moment to like digest all of that. Um, one thing that kind of came to mind when talking about the different levels of harm or like not levels and that's, but like the different, the different types of harm, um, especially at this sort of interpersonal level, you mentioned like a one part of accountability is contingent upon someone becoming self-aware that some harm has taken place. And I'm kind of wondering, in, like, in what do we do sort of in the absence of that? Because I do think that at these other levels of like, like state sanctioned violence, all of these other things, the enactor of harm, I at least don't think ever really becomes self-aware because it's fundamentally not designed to be. So I, I've been noticing that like the a difference between kind of like how accountability, I think gets thrown around and more so how I've been seeing it talked about in like transformative justice spaces now have kind of I've, I've noticed that there is this like leap or like distance between like that that fundamental part of accountability and the like accountability process is contingent on this like willingness and so I do wonder how then when we are talking about these other forms of violence how does that actually weave into those conversations and what do we do? Because I, I also think that like, it's not also just at a state level where there isn't a self-awareness. There are also interpersonal interactions where people are not like, just either choose not to, aren't, don't have the tools to, don't have the, or, or just aren't self-aware enough to engage in accountability. But unlike an interpersonal interaction where sometimes you can step away. You can't exactly step out of these systems. You can't just be like, I'm gonna, I'm just going to pack up and leave the entire like colonized, like, con like colonized world. Um, um, I mean, maybe we can, but then the question <laughs> is, where do we go? <laughs> where do we go and not also become the colonizers? Right. But yeah, I guess like that, that was something that I have been wondering when like doing and looking into like accountability and transformative justice is that there is this like reality that there are instances where that self-awareness isn't there. So what do we do to like create community and safety and justice? A very great question. Um, I will just say that in terms of state violence, I do think the state is designed inherently from a place of violence. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that there are certain constructs that in order for us to live in a completely liberated world, we would need to reshape some basic building blocks of how our current lives are structured. Like we would probably need to deconstruct nations and end borders. We would need to deconstruct race, right? Not ethnicity to be clear and not difference, right? Human beings are 
different from one another in several different ways, but it is the construction of race and, of course, racial capitalism to name something that Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore speaks about a lot, right? That is mm -hmm. where the violence comes in. It's not in our differences. Um, you know, we would have to stop practices like assigning sex at birth uh, or thinking that sex and gender are the same thing or thinking that we know anything about an infant's sex or gender, really, unless we're chromosomally testing an infant when they're born, which we currently don't, right? Um, mm -hmm. That we would have to end the gender binary and end the practice of imposing an identity on a human being rather than letting that human being show us over time who they are and who they're becoming. Um, so many things. We would have to, I think, change the, the nuclear family model of how resources get divided and shared mm -hmm. um, and how a safety net gets built. Currently in our society, the only common structure for any kind of safety net is the blood family reinforced by the state. And for so many of us, myself included, mm -hmm. both of those structures are exactly where I experienced violence in my blood family. And then in the safety net that was created there supposedly in the state, right? Both of those mm -hmm. structures were very violent in my life as a young person. So, you know, that is, I'm not sure I would call all of that dismantling and rethinking quote unquote transformative justice so much as I would call it abolition. And mm -hmm. I think the transformative justice piece of that organizing work um, is around, you know, transformative justice, as I understand it, is around shifting the, the conditions that allowed the violence to happen to begin with, right? Mm. And so it looks different when you're talking about organizing to end the violence of the state or the violence of the gender binary or the violence of racial capitalism and the construction of race or the violence of the blood family even. Um, that's generally speaking, I mean, my work, I think, feeds into that, hopefully, at some level over, over time and over generations. Um, but my personal work and certainly the work of Mirror Memoirs is much more uh, relational and in transforming the way that people have intimacy with themselves, uh, with people that they choose to be in relationship with, and with the blood families that they were attached to by the state, right? Like mm -hmm. we're literally given a birth certificate that we belong to some adult when we come mm -hmm. into this world, right? And so I think in Mirror Memoirs, what we are attempting to do is to, to create cultures in which, a culture of relational um, ways of being, relational praxis uh, that either address violence when it happens between people, and when it happened, you know, and change the culture of the relational network that holds the two or more people that had some violent incident go down from one or more to another, um, or gives people tools to break away from their blood family if their blood family chooses not to be accountable, right? Mm. Or gives people tools to break away from an abusive partner or an abusive friend or an abusive coworker. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, there are many other survivors who do transformative justice or transformative relational work um, who speak much more extensively than me about this part of the work. Uh, Shannon Perez Darby comes to mind. 
Um, she wrote an essay in the anthology, The Revolution Starts at Home. And then last year at the conference that I think you're speaking about, which was in April of 2019 at Barnard College, mm -hmm. convened by Miriam Kaba, Miriam brought about 50 of us who are who are practicing work that somehow relates to transformative justice um, together for a series of plenaries at the college. And Shannon was there as one of the speakers and she spoke on some of the ideas that are in her essay. In her essay, she talks about, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but she talks about if the goal is autonomy and the goal is consent, then we cannot force people into accountability. Right? People mm -hmm. have to choose to be accountable for the violence that they have committed, for the abuse that they may have committed, for the harms that they have committed. And all we can control as survivors of violence uh, is how we are accountable to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is not saying at all that, that the abuses that we may experience are our fault. It is simply saying that we give up all of our power when we say things like, the only way I can heal is if the person who harmed me is accountable to me, right? Because I will say, as someone who was raped over 400 times by my father and was abused in many other ways, verbally, emotionally, physically, for a much longer time period than even the rape in my life, you know, he is now in his late 60s, he's almost 70, and he has chosen consistently over decades to not be accountable, to gaslight, to deny, um, to escape any kind of community structures that may have wanted his personal transformation. And if I said to myself that the only way I could ever find any kind of healing was for my father to sit in front of me or in front of someone in our shared community and admit what he had done and like change his way of being in the world and apologize to me, I would not be able to access any healing because he has consistently not chosen those things, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that my healing is dependent on my father's accountability. I think what is dependent on my father's accountability is whether I ever have a relationship with him again. Mm -hmm. Right? So like I can choose as a survivor of someone's harm or violence or abuse to end a relationship with them. I have the power to do that. Um, and I have the power to create boundaries. And I have the power to ask the people who love me to help me protect those boundaries. Um, I have the power to look within myself because I was born into a violent culture and a violent world to say what parts of the way I was socialized are actually abusive to myself, mm -hmm. right? If I have internalized patriarchy and I am a femme, female assigned person, well, that's, if I espouse the va values of patriarchy, I am going to be harmful to myself, right? Mm -hmm. If I espouse the values of heterosexuality as a queer non-binary person, I'm going to be violent myself, right? If I internalize the values of white supremacy as a racialized non-black person of color, I'm going to be violent to myself and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. And I think especially around internalized ableism, I'm still working through that at, at 42 years old. You know, I think something that we don't talk about enough is how disabling trauma is. Um, and mm, yeah. I think a lot of us shy away from that admission 
because of internalized ableism, because we live in such a violently ableist country. And that is, of course, interwoven inherently into anti-Blackness and um, heteropatriarchy and all of the other structures, dominant cultural norms in this violent society. But I specifically name ableism because I think so many people normalize trauma-related disabilities because trauma is so common, mm -hmm. right? I don't love the term um, neurodivergent to describe myself because in the course of a decade of doing very public-facing work around ending childhood rape, I have realized in witnessing so many survivors' stories, thousands of people at this point have disclosed to me that we are very likely the norm. People who have experienced at least one incident of rape or sexual assault in our lifetimes um, are the norm in this world. And so what are we divergent from if we are the dominant population, right? Perhaps the experience of having trauma-related disabilities is the norm, and it is actually exceptional to go through the span of a human life without experiencing a trauma-related disability. And, mm -hmm. and so... You know, that still doesn't mean just because it is the norm that it's not a disability. And so as someone who lives with complex PTSD, um, that has been one of the most challenging pieces of my own self-accountability is to stop gaslighting myself and to stop being abusive to myself and to honor my disability and to honor the pace that I need to move at and the way I need to show up in the world, in my relationships and in the quote unquote work that I do in the world. Um, this is all self-accountability. And I can absolutely demand and request accountability from people who have harmed me. And I can certainly choose, and this is an important part of relational praxis as well, when I harm people, because I do, and I would say, hopefully not in an abusive way, right? I think, I would like to think, and so far most of the feedback I've received when I get called in to be accountable is, it's not about me doing intentional abusive harm, but it is about me unintentionally harming people, right? Um, that part of the work I have to do as well is to um, not internalize the shame that we have also been taught in this violent culture, that if we do something wrong, if we make a mistake, if we hurt somebody, that we are trash. We are lit, right? This is- Yeah, yeah. this was, this was uh, last, my last, and I can't say last week, but the last episode, um, I covered was kind of really looking at toxic shame as it pertains to trauma and as it pertains to our movement work because uh, personally I think it's one of the like foundational aspects of like what our culture is built on it's built I mean we're built the the west is especially the U.S. is built off of like a puritan like religious cultural background that says like to be a good person you must constantly be ashamed of sin and like what you're and I feel like what we consider to be like the sin has just shifted in some ways even in our movement work that some of those things that we do it's like okay cool it's not being queer but it's do it's causing harm in any like shape or form and so yeah but that that's something that like just really resonated yeah it's it's really challenging work the work of creating an abolitionist reality requires so much inner work and so much interpersonal work um, that requires a lot of vulnerability, a lot of radical honesty, a lot of, um, you know, 
blunt and tender all at the same time communication, a lot of um, intimacy. And these are not things, unfortunately, that, that most of us have been taught either by our families, the communities around us as children, our schools, you know, uh, and, and so we're stumbling through it with each other. And I think particularly in uh, QT BIPOC, you know, queer, trans, intersex, black, indigenous, and other people of color communities, um, most of us have survived egregious forms of violence as children, and certainly anyone who is visibly gender nonconforming and, and racialized, and particularly folks who are um, black or indigenous of all genders, you know, that arc of, of the threat of violence continues um, because of state violence and civilian white supremacist violence throughout life. And so it is um, a very challenging practice that requires a lot of self-compassion, discipline, um, and the, the creation of a I don't even want to say a subculture because I hope that one day these cultural norms become the dominant culture, but a new way of being with mm -hmm. each other, you know, through, through podcasts like this, through the books that we write, through the panels that we give, through the relationships that we have. Social media, I think, has been such a beautiful tool to witness how quickly things can get amplified, right? Messages like defund the police and de defend black life and abolishing... Yeah all the institutions of harm. Um, so I have a lot of hope for our potential to really make these changes happen, but it is certainly never easy work. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, I think one thing that I have found in myself and then to like, not also shame that part of myself and like project that shame onto other people, which is what I'm currently like the little bit that I'm working through right now um, really think about is how often a lot of us turn to this movement work as like a way to escape our traumas and then without realizing that a lot of this movement work requires us to with like tenderness and with like support and vulnerability and all these other things to still have to work through um these things like these these traumas because I've I've found in like my my like organizing like really getting into things started like my junior year of high school with Freddie Gray because I'm in Baltimore um and I had like Bless my teacher. She took like me and a bunch of the other like boarders to the protests that we had in um, DC. But that's kind of where I started. And, and this was happening at the same time. I was like dating someone whose family that was like, you're going to get disowned if you bring home this black girl who was also himself queer phobic and racist. If he ever hears that, hears this, I'm <laughs> like you know hello I'm gay and black and trans <laughs> um but and and I don't and I, I never really thought about it until saying it right now that definitely part of my like directing that like not unprocessed trauma from like that relationship 
was going into this movement work that I was doing. And like, while in some ways that was really like, it, it was a helpful way for me to like process. Cause I like made me be like, Oh, some of this that I'm feeling interpersonally is actually like these systems of, of oppression. But I also, it took me until like last year to really realize that I was like, okay, that goes so far. And now I feel like I've, I've gotten to a point where I'm like, okay, now I'm projecting these interpersonal things onto these, onto these systems of oppression so much that, because it's definitely influences it, but so much that it's become like untouchable. Like sometimes it'll be like, I am upset at like anti-blackness and all this other stuff. And I'm also upset at the way that like my aunt gaslit me. And it'll be like me directing that frustration and anger while anger is really powerful and all these other things at these like nameless systems when it's like all of this other interpersonal stuff going on. Like I know me and a couple other survivors that I've talked to like really intellectualize our trauma and like do that through our movement work. And so, but I've been seeing it and I've also been seeing like when I take a step back um, to look at like the things that are going on in movement space, when I'm watching them, I'm like, this looks exactly like me and my family fighting. Like me and like all of these like unprocessed traumas like the the part of the part of my family because like in my own story I, I see parts of my family that are like very very abusive I'm not connected to and then the ones that like try to help me but still abuse me in the process and so I see some of those dynamics like playing out in the movement spaces I've been in um so so just like watching all of it I, I, it's really made me also think about also my own like journey through trauma because I, I mentioned this like before we started recording how like I felt like in my own story I kind of had my crisis I feel like I had my crisis moment maybe like five years earlier than the rest of like I have some friends who were just starting to like like come into it I'm like oh like I'm like I want to hold you and I'll then like support you but yeah it's rough um but like being in that space and then like watching my generation come into movement space, it's been very weird because I don't want to be like, oh, I'm a step removed from it. Like, oh, I've I've healed and I'm just watching because like that's definitely not it. But I do think that I have like crashed and burned in certain ways and started be in the beginning phases of healing some of that in a perspective that I'm like watching all of this happen and it's like okay what also what like embodied knowledge from not just trauma but like processing and I say healing as like a quote-unquote because healing is a loaded term in terms of like this idea that like you can be healed in in like like you've never had trauma like you can be cured like you know, that's, that's not it, but like healing as like a ongoing process of like just change, um, really looking at it and being like, being able to identify as a, as a trauma survivor, 
these dynamics and I, and this kind of leads to like another one of the other questions that I was think like wanted to talk about is kind of this perspective of like what knowledge from trauma survivors from like childhood trauma survivors like is that I mean like not what is like valuable like as if it's not but like really getting into like some of the details of like what lessons are also there and like how do we also like balance that lessons from trauma with like living in it and replicating it in our movement spaces you are asking such good questions that I do not have pithy answers to, but I will do my best uh, to share some version of an answer. You know, in Mirror Memoirs, we are attempting to craft an intersectional abolitionist praxis. And so the wisdom in the collective stories and experiences from this organization are not only from childhood trauma survivors, but specifically from trans, gender nonconforming, and or queer racialized people who were raped and or sexually assaulted as children, right? It's a very specific uh, who is invited to share a story in our audio archive. We have 58 stories currently being readied for public distribution We've pushed our distribution date back due to COVID, uh, but in early 2021, we will begin sharing those stories publicly. And we are already now three years into the practice of using clips, spliced together clips from different pieces of people's reflections and wisdom sharing as political education tools in healing circles and in um, circles in which we're inviting people outside of our immediate demographic to become accomplices to the work of abolition. And I think one of the things that gets highlighted very clearly when you center particularly trans and gender non, visibly gender nonconforming Black and Indigenous people, uh, and I include some Latinx folks uh, there who are not Black but who are Indigenous to the Americas, right? Mm -hmm. um, it becomes incredibly clear that the state is a perpetrator mm -hmm. um, because the sites of harm um, include not only the blood family, which is I think what the state wants us to pretty much exclusively focus on. Sorry. <laughs> I have a 13 year old brother and he likes to FaceTime me at the most inopportune times. <laughs> that was him. Um, and so, um, the state, I think, would like us to think about the rape of children as something that only happens in the private sphere, right? Mm. Within the blood family or within um, familial friend networks, right? Maybe in a religious institution or a sports institution or a school. Even then, though, that gets into some of the state violence. What mm. we find in this organization, um, the, in the stories of our members in Mirror Memoirs, is you know, young people also being raped in state-run psychiatric institutions mm. and in state-run group homes and in state-assigned foster care homes. And if they should run away, which we, we know that 40% of all homeless youth in the major cities across this country are queer and or trans identified, right? Mm. And 53% of those youth say that fleeing violence at home was one of the primary reasons that they left. Um, 
And so if those youth should choose to engage in survival sex work, right, that's also a form of violence um, mm -hmm. that they have to be subjected to because as my friend and colleague Ignacio Rivera says uh, in reflecting on their own experience as a young person, it might be the best option off a menu of really shitty choices. Uh, so mm. then young people are experiencing violence in a form of survival um, labor. It's not quite in, intentionally consensual labor because these are all young people who deserve a better menu, right, of support. Uh, but that that quote unquote labor is criminalized, and we see so many stories of young people uh, like Sintoya Brown, who, mm. in um, defending themselves from that violence, then get criminalized themselves, right? Uh, and then we know that the police, of course, are um, some of the biggest perpetrators of rape and sexual assault in our country, and always have been, um, particularly because of the legacy of enslavement that police directly grow out of as an institution that policing grows out of. And so there are so many young people within Mirror Memoirs who were raped or sexually assaulted by police officers as well, or if they experienced incarceration in their youth or adulthood, uh, it was the prison guards, or if they're undocumented, it was the immigration detention center guards who raped them. So I think that that is an incredible um, clear analysis that starts to unfold about how broad-based our strategy of abolition needs to be, how inclusive it needs to be, that we need to understand psychiatric institutions as an arm of policing, for example, right? Yeah. And then, so like there's the wisdom that comes from these collective stories around what is violence and um, where is it happening? And then there's the wisdom around who is it happening to? I think Far, for far too long in this country, uh, we have been socialized to think about the rape of children as something that happens uh, only to female assigned at birth, female identified children, so cisgender girls. Mm. And what becomes clear in this archive is the illumination of a statistic that comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is that gender nonconformity is a risk factor for childhood rape and sexual assault. And so uh, that study actually found that male assigned at birth children who are gender nonconforming are um, disproportionately at risk more than any other gender mm. of child um, for being raped or sexually assaulted. And we even know that for cisgender boys, there are so many places. Um, that sexual assault happens, right? Policing, whenever policing happens, it, it usually includes the threat of sexual assault, if not the reality of it. So um, I think we really need to examine, re-examine these stories, call us to re-examine how we think about sexual violence and who it happens to and who mm -hmm. needs to be centered in movements to end rape culture, uh, how inclusive our analysis of who is a survivor needs to be. Uh, and then also in terms of who commits this violence, in Mirror Memoirs, we find uh, that among these 58 stories, 9% of people were raped or sexually assaulted by a cisgender woman. And mm. we never talk about cisgender women as potential rapists, um, even though there is a very famous movie from, I believe, the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, that led to the DSM um, construction of 
uh, dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. That diagnosis is based on the survivorship of a girl named Sybil, who was raped repeatedly in her childhood by her mm -hmm. cisgender mother. So even though we know that story and we have a whole mental health diagnosis that comes from her story, somehow in the common narratives about understanding rape culture, we erase the perpetration of cisgender women. Um, so these stories ask us to re-examine who sexual violence happens to and who is perpetrating sexual violence. Uh, I think these stories also uh, ask us to re-examine the false binary between survivor and perpetrator. Mm, um, we yeah. know that sexual violence is a learned behavior. Um, it has been very disturbing to me in this time of a lot of public dialogue around quote unquote survivor leadership, that there is not an intersectional abolitionist call to um, undergird the leadership of survivors. So, yeah. you know, my father is a survivor of childhood rape. He's very forthcoming about that when people try to hold him accountable for his actions as someone who has raped children. Um, I do not want a movement to end sexual violence led by my father. Uh, right? I don't think anyone does. So I think we need to complicate the dialogue around survivor leadership and say it's not enough to just be a survivor uh, who appoints themselves a leader to end sexual violence. You have to have a commitment to accountability as a practice. Uh, you have to have um, an analysis that is intersectional and abolitionist. Um, otherwise, we land with things like carceral feminism, right? Which just expand the prison system as yeah. a supposed solution. When I just said, like, so many people in Mirror Memoirs were raped within the carceral system. Um, so, yeah, the, the stories illuminate so much. And then finally, the thing I'm most excited about and that I use the piece of the archive around the most is every single person who told their stories within Mirror Memoirs answered the questions. Uh, question number one, if you went through a portal in this very moment into another dimension in which capitalism does not exist, and your only responsibility for as long as you stay in that dimension from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep is to heal yourself, and you have a bottomless toolbox that contains every spiritual and material resource you need to support your healing, what's in the box? So we have 50 day, 58 different answers to that question on record. Oh, wow. And it's very beautiful to hear people's visions. You know, um, a lot of people talk about like, oh, I, I want to have housing security and live in right relationship with the land. I want to live on a piece of land that includes people that I love and trust and where we're supporting each other and practicing an ethos of care and growing our own food and we have time to rest and we have time to play. Um, a lot of people talk about art supplies or music. Uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, tools for self-defense um, and and time to explore who they are. Uh, so I think that's a really important part of the work of Mirror Memoirs is to allow ourselves, you know, again, I don't know, and I don't think any of the individuals in the project know what the world will look like when we reach abolition, but we have to allow ourselves to do abolition dreaming, right? Freedom dreaming. Mm -hmm. Like what is the healing that we're actually looking for if it's not carceral, carceral feminism? Mm. Um, so I'm very glad that people answered that question. And then finally, everybody answered the question, what is your personal vision for how humanity can end child sexual abuse? So we have 58 different answers on record uh, to that question. And many of them are abolitionist visions. So um, 
there's a lot of wisdom that comes from listening to survivors. And I think there's a special kind of wisdom that comes from listening to survivors who have historically been left out of every single mm. mainstream effort, organized effort to end rape culture, such as trans, black, indigenous, and other racialized people of color. Yeah. Um, talking about kind of complicating the um, the binary b- between like survivor and um, like uh, abuser or like person who perpetuates violence. Cause I'm in a very um, similar boat. My perpetrator, my perpetrator both of like sexual assault was a survivor themselves. And then like people in my family who then like emotionally abused me and those situations were also survivors. And, and then there's like also all the ways in which like things get racialized and a lot of like, that's a, it's a whole other conversation. I've gotten into a lot of like arguments with white feminists who've, who've like not recognized the like violence of their own like white womanhood. And, and so, so there's, there's all of that, but, um, I wanted to kind of talk about, or like push a little like deeper into the idea also of culpability especially when we're talking about these generations of like perpetuated violence um because you know and I think you had mentioned this in land like in the conversation about um harm and I know I've thought about this in my own life of like you know those who have hurt me were also once hurt. They were also once like, and, and those who hurt them, it goes back farther and farther and farther. And I also am kind of wondering, like, even is culpability where we want to even have the conversation? Um, but I know that that's something that becomes a part of like the material conversation, whether or not there's an answer and like whether or not it even not that it doesn't matter like not that like if someone does harm they shouldn't be accountable but like in these spaces where it goes back and becomes difficult to like pinpoint is it even like in our long-term interest to try to narrow it down to like this is where it all started and like we have to uproot it from like this like yes we have to uproot things but like pinpointing it at a specific place is that helpful you know I think that with someone like my father and my own focus on um intervention and ending rape culture I think about it as a multi-pronged approach right it is true that my father is someone who has raped more than one female assigned child in his family over the span of many decades and I think my aim as a teenager uh, was, my desire as a teenager was for him to not be able to harm or rape specifically anyone else again. And unfortunately, you know, that, that desire was unmet, right? I have a younger sister. I've written publicly and spoken with her um, at various conferences about the fact that she's about 20 years younger than me and was also sexually assaulted by our father. Um, we have different moms. Uh, and, you know, I, I definitely felt it was part of my 
own journey towards liberation and healing to intervene in her life to the best of my ability when she was 12 and I was 32 because I had enough um, power as an adult at that point in my life to do something, right? And to not be victimized by my father in that moment. So I don't think it's an either or, right? I think it was right for me to intervene in her life. I think it, it continues to be right for me to um, write within the Indian American community and specifically the Punjabi American community that my father is part of to speak about his violent actions because he continues to move through the world as someone who who pretends to be a new age healer and a guru of sorts, right? So mm -hmm. anytime I hear about some self-published book that he has put on the market or a talk that he's giving, I usually will reach out to the organizers or the publisher or what have you and share any number of the articles or talks that I have given at this point or created at this point um, that sort of out his, um, his history of violence. And at the same time, in in my people's context, right? Because unfortunately, rape culture and patriarchy are also a global pandemic. And they actually, it, rape culture, there is a particular kind of rape culture in the United States that stems specifically from the genocide uh, and enslavement of both indigenous and kidnapped African people. That is like the American flavor of rape culture. But there are many flavors of rape culture mm. around the world that predate the creation of the United States. And in my own people's tradition, uh, that, that culture um, is rooted in Brahminical patriarchy, uh, mm -hmm. which is about the caste system and the, the you know, Hindu nationalism. And uh, my family uh, on my dad's side is a very Brahminical patriarchal, they're, they're Hindu Brahmins generationally. And within that construct, you know, there is a Hindu kind of code that goes back 2200 years that literally says it's called the code of manu that says when a girl child or an assigned female child is born she because they use that pronoun in this text is the property of her father and then he gets to decide who to marry her off to and then she's the property of her husband and if she should outlive her husband but she has a son she is the ward of her oldest son um, so you know, when I think about the long-term work, if the goal is to prevent someone like my father from developing, then we need to change Brahminical patriarchy, right? Mm. We need to end Hindu nationalism. We need to end the caste system. We need to end um, all of the, the cultural norms and institutional forms of violence that support that kind of domination, right? We need to end mm. the culture in a South Asian context that says, if someone with a vagina is raped, that person's family is dishonored, right? That's mm. where you have the phenomenon of something called quote-unquote honor killings, right? Mm. Um, and there are different cultural contexts around the world that have their own flavor of rape culture. I mean, your question about how far back do we have to go, there are people in mirror memoirs who are immigrants from the African continent who are queer, female assigned at birth people who grew up in their early childhood on the African continent with their generational people and experienced sexual violence within that context, right? So there mm -hmm. is those particular flavors of rape culture and patriarchy, again, that is the universal norm of violence that needs to shift, right? That needs to change. I think the hope 
the thing that I find very inspiring in the gift of my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's decision to emigrate to the United States is in this land where liberation has to be rooted in um, Black, trans, and queer feminism and indigenous two-spirit feminism and liberation is, um, and particularly, you know, obviously for indigenous people, there was a way of being on Turtle Island that predated the arrival of white settlers, right? Mm -hmm. But we know, obviously, that that Black people emerged through the kidnapping and forced breeding and, and so much violence here on this land. But because of that, Black liberation is generation after generation of building towards more and more liberatory ways of being. And I am excited uh, as someone who has benefited so much from reading the work of and being in relationship with Black, queer, and trans feminists, uh, that the liberation that will lead to the wellness of Black, queer, and trans femmes is a level of liberation that certainly my people have never experienced in our own cultural context. And that mm -hmm. is why I think it's very important, not just as an ally or as someone who believes in being a quote unquote good person, but who also wants to experience liberation myself. It is why I work for um, Black liberation in this country, because if we can figure out what the conditions are by following Black, black intersectional abolitionist survivor leadership, right? Then we are figuring out a way to end the state and to end heteropatriarchy and to end the gender binary and to look beyond the blood family as networks of kinship and care and to end ableism, which is an inherently anti-black construct in an American context, right? Like mm -hmm. if we can end all of those things, then I benefit as well, right? Um, so there's so much to grieve about all of the generations of suffering that our people have gone through all over the world because of the different norms of violence. And, and to be clear that, you know, we can't conflate those different kinds of harm. The harm that female assigned people in my lineage have experienced um, is a very particular kind of caste-based Brahminical patriarchy of harm, right? Mm -hmm. Going back, like I said, about 2,200 years I can't compare that at all to the harm that your people have experienced. But in my view of me trying my best and making lots of mistakes as a non-Black person of color um, to use my time and wisdom and resources uh, towards the, the North Star or the compass point of Black liberation, right? That Mm -hmm. I might in my lifetime um, experience a level of liberation that perhaps none of my ancestors ever experienced, at least not for the past 2,200 years. You also ended up answering my closing question, <laughs> which um, was kind of getting into like, how do you navigate the space, like these movements as a um, non-Black person and like anything you had to say towards that. But you already touched on it. Um, and then I just it close all of my um, interviews with a question, which you kind of also touched on. Um, what would be like, what has been like one really like transformative concept or like radicalizing 
um, idea in your life that kind of led you towards the path that you're on now? I think I want to talk specifically about um, this political time that we're living within. Mm. Um, you know, talking about the global pandemic of COVID and the global pandemic of anti-Blackness, and I would say the third global pandemic of childhood rape um, and the culture that normalizes that violence, um, it is very easy to despair if you are someone who prior to COVID experienced any level of privilege at all. And I would be mm -hmm. remiss not to say the ways that I have been privileged, right? I uh, am a light-skinned, non-Black person of color whose family are immigrants from India uh, who all chose to come here, right? We did not emigrate here as refugees. Um, my family are in an Indian context, an upper caste family. So there is general, generational, as much as the female assigned people in my lineage have certainly suffered by being considered the property of the men around them uh, for generations, we also benefited from our caste status, right? So uh, there's all of those privileges. There's the privilege I've had educationally. I grew up in a very um, working class and later blue collar middle class family. Um, and my parents did not go to college, but I had the benefit of being accepted to very elite schools, um, both undergrad and grad school. And so, you know, I think it would be easy for someone like me in some ways to despair um, at what is happening in our country at this time uh, and all that is changing rapidly. But I think it's been very important to root myself in the, the discipline of hope, to paraphrase Miriam Kaba. Miriam Kaba talks about hope is a discipline, and, and that is a saying that she learned from a nun um, who was committed to social justice for her life. And I think the person who has helped me stay rooted in hope during this time is my life partner, uh, Patricio Manuel, who happens to be um, a Black man who is the first professional uh, boxer to who is transgender to turn pro. And so as a Black trans man, um, he has kept me really grounded at this time in our conversations. I live with him, and so I talk to him more than I talk to anyone right now. And he has said more than once, you know, for people who are Black American, who come from a lineage of surviving enslavement, and who are trans, 2020 is the best our lives have ever been in terms of having freedom at some level to declare our true gender identities. Um, if we are lucky to find trans-inclusive medical care, to be able to medically transition, um, in his case, to live a life as a professional athlete, um, as a trans Black man, right? And I think that that has been a very humbling um, and important notion for me to wrap my head around, that for so many people in the United States, um, we are moving closer and closer with each passing year to collective liberation. And certainly that becomes clear when you center uh, trans Black Americans who have survived the lineage of enslavement. And I'm very grateful for that, that perspective. And it does help me stay rooted in the discipline of hope at this time um, to remember that 
you know, I am committed to Black trans liberation as my North Star, and that there's a lot to celebrate um, at this time in terms of the real progress being made every single day. Certainly, I think on the culture front, we are winning the culture war. You know, I read all the time about studies from the Williams Institute here in California put out a study recently. I think it was that 27% of uh, children in California identify as non-cisgender. And I read a, <laughs> a different study not long ago that in Gen Z, 53% of Gen Z identify as not straight. So, you know, that gives me a lot of hope too and a lot of joy that perhaps even with everything happening, that children who are being born today are born just a little bit freer than children in my generation. Awesome, thank you.